At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Everybody, welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig. Healthcare Americana is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and caregivers, executives and advocates. We're fed up with the status quo. We have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Today, I'm joined by Folia Health founder and CEO, Nell Luo. And I'm just going to dive right into it because Nell and her company have a really intriguing story about their origins and, and really where they started to hit their stride recently with obviously everyone's favorite subject, the COVID-19 pandemic. Nell, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to talk with you. You know, as I was kind of doing that introduction, and, and it's kind of funny to say COVID-19 because here we are in 2022. Yep. <laughs> um, I always say, you know, like I'm going to throw my hands up and be done with it when we when we have a COVID-22 uh, or else we just change the name of it, you know, after three years. But uh, anyways, that's not here nor there. Folia Health, Give us a quick overview about really what you guys are doing and, you know, focus on, you know, why listeners should really tune in and follow your company and all the cool stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Well, well thank you for, uh, you know, giving us this platform to talk about it. So the concept behind Folia um, is that when we think about understanding what health is and what someone's experience of their health is and why it matters to them, we often miss the entire point, which is that that individual is living a life that they want. They're trying to not care too much about how they feel at any given point in time. They want to pay attention to work, school, their family, and not the annoyance or sometimes real crisis that can be their health and um, you know their, their physical body. And so what we think about when we think about healthcare tends to be kind of too focused on the way that we would define your health when you show up at the clinic, the way that a doctor would measure it using devices during your appointment. We don't spend enough time thinking about how is an individual person living that daily life at their home, at their workplace with their kids, how is that person experiencing how they feel? And what are the things that are blockers for them to having the life that they want, right? Because ultimately, when we, when we think about what the true value of health is, or what the way that we should measure your health is, we should be focused on that, right? We should be focused on you, on how you feel, on how you're being able to live, not on a couple of kind of predefined measurements that are collected at the clinic because they're convenient and easy within the context of you know our acute based healthcare system. And so, you know, this is something that I care a lot about and something that my co-founder Dan cares a lot about because 
we have family members. I have a brother and he has a daughter who have complex diseases that they're living with. And as a result of those complex diseases, it's been hard for them to be able to completely dissociate from the, the things that are going on in their bodies and you know how they're feeling. And really the point of all of the care that our families have worked hard to get my brother and uh, Mila, Dan's daughter, the point of all of that is to make them obviously healthy, able to live a long, happy life and not to have to worry about it all the time. And so what we realized is that the way that the healthcare system is structured right now, we aren't paying enough attention to the individual and what's going on with them, what their condition or conditions are and how they're changed over time by therapies. What we're really doing is trying to standardize, trying to put people in relatively small buckets that are defined around kind of, again, convenient ways to measure disease. But what you end up with are people who are kind of stranded because most people don't fit into those buckets. It's a very common saying, you know, if you speak with a clinician, they would tell you that there's no such thing as an average patient because ultimately we're all very different. And the only way that we can truly understand what someone's going through and what will work for them is to measure in a very individual way what they care about and what they're noticing. And so at Folia, what we've built is a methodology and a platform to enable people to capture the observations that they make around their health and how they're doing. They get to determine what it is that they're paying attention to, because ultimately, you know, what's bothering you, right? We don't have to tell you that because you have chronic migraine, you should be paying attention to headache. You are already paying attention to your headache. So you can tell us, I want to pay attention to headache and nausea, and I've never experienced abdominal cramping. And so I don't care about that. You can track those things using folia, and then you can use that data yourself to create a better record of what's going on and to get more precise care. And so all of that data can be captured outside of the clinic. It can be captured by you or by your family member. And then combined with those clinical records, you can pull that data into our system to then create a complete record or what we call a full path record of your health, what's changing. And ultimately, like you're defining your own priorities for your care by doing that. It seems like this is a counter movement to everything we hear about population health and what you just said. How do you balance the movement towards population health with the stories that you just told from healthcare is a very personal thing. There's no such thing as the average patient because to me, I'm sitting here nodding as you say this, and I I completely agree with you. This is not like we're standardizing the manufacturing of automobiles or widgets. I mean, every single person on this planet is different. That's just flat out fact. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of similarities, right? right? But everybody is different on a molecular level. So with this trend towards population health, how are you swimming against the tide? Yeah, it's a great question. The way that we kind of think of ourselves and, and listen, you know, I'm a public health person by kind of trade and education. And it's something that um, I think that you have an inner struggle right there. Uh, you know what? Um, yes, it's a difficult thing to reconcile. Right. So what I would say is it depends on the problem that you're trying to solve whether it's something that warrants a population type of scope or something that should be about the individual. But also when we think about a population, you can think about a population as an average and as a kind of standardized set of people, or you can think of a population as a collection of individuals. To me, obviously, based on you know what you just said, a collection of individuals is a much more accurate way to describe a population, right? Now, the tricky part is, it's a much more difficult way to analyze a population. And that's something that we've spent a huge amount of time 
developing and working on at Folia is when you consider that a population is a combination of individuals and not a group of people who are very similar to kind of hive mentality, right? Right. Of, Of averages, right? If you stop trying to average, you'll then find that there's a universe of different analytic methods that do allow you to still be able to draw conclusions about, you know, broad clusters of people without necessarily narrowing all of them down to at least common denominator that ultimately doesn't end up describing anyone. So I think I think it has to do with our methods um, and not just the analytic methods, because I'm sure I'll lose everybody if I start talking about those, but also um, it has to do with the way in which we provide care, right? Because if a physician or another clinician is providing care to an average, then they're not really meeting the needs of anyone, right? But if they understand based on population level research, the types of trends that might exist, and then they treat each individual as you know all good clinicians do, they're able to use population information to inform that individual interaction without necessarily assuming that the population level information applies to the individual. And that's where we get lost, right? We, we get lost in equating the average with the individual. Mm-hmm. I can give you an example if you if you're you know a personal example if, if that's interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. Let me let me just kind of go through that. So it's more on the care delivery side of using averages, using population health as maybe that's kind of your advisory board, you know, on, on saying like, okay, this diagnosis could be this or this. Let's look at some different types of trends, not just saying okay, you are a 40-year-old male, uh, population health says that you're not at risk for colon cancer. So we're just going to rule that out and not even track that down right. there because those, those people who are outliers have serious, you know, that's life or death decisions, you know, if you yeah. come along those lines. So I just want to be clear that, you know, I'm on the same page with you. I tell people all the time that in healthcare, I'm sure this is like this in a lot of different industries, maybe not, but in healthcare, you and I can say the exact same words and the exact same phrase and be talking about two completely different delivery models, processes, billing techniques. I mean, it's astonishing just mm-hmm. how much confusion and kind of double speak, you know, kind of borrow an Orwellian term there uh, exists in healthcare in general. So with that, I, I love examples. I love stories. Yeah. Uh, everybody yeah. out there who's ever heard this uh, show understands that. It's his, and probably has, has experienced something like this. It's, so it's, I, to, to respond to what you just said there for a second, though, I think that what's interesting is... I would argue that the reason that we end up in many clinical contexts drifting toward trying to use the average and, and doing exactly what you just described, right? That um, saying this person probably doesn't have colon cancer or definitely doesn't because of their demographics is because of the way that we collect information, right? So it's because of the fact that we are only collecting very high level really not very descriptive at all information about each person's journey through the healthcare system so that we honestly don't have very granular knowledge about how we would even go about guessing if you might have colon cancer, if you don't fit into one of those demographics, right? And so what we need to be able to do to get more precise and more individualized in our care is the first step is to collect better information at a more individual level so that we have better predictive models to say, not what's your age, gender, race, and then we'll figure out what might be happening with you. But instead, here's a set of you know very specific questions. How many bowel movements you had, have you had this week? Do you have any abdominal pain, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that have more to do with your personal experience of your health? The only way that we can define 
that better is by collecting better information because we just we literally don't have the you know raw materials to start being more individualized yet and that's and that's what what we're doing but from the perspective of you know the example so this is kind of a silly example it's much less kind of life or death than most of the people who use folia um, so I, I just want to call that out because there are a lot of people who are dealing with this in a much more dramatic way but I was going through a process of fertility, infertility, and and trying to um, understand fertility treatments that might work for me. And I will skip to the end and say it worked. I have a four-month-old daughter. So that's, you know, that's the happy ending. I love Um, happy endings. Yes. (laughs) But um, part of this process was that I was wondering if I might have something called PCOS, which is a very common condition that many women have that can create fertility issues. And I kept hitting a brick wall because of exactly what you're describing, just simple demographic information. I'm not in a couple of categories where, you know, usually people who are quote unquote, usually we can get to that. People who have PCOS are above a certain BMI, have like some additional dark hair on their arms or on their legs, something like that. I'm blonde and relatively thin. And it was a feeling of because I'm in that general demographic category, there's no possible way that I could have PCOS. And the way that I ended up actually getting this diagnosis, which then informed my fertility care, was I did a literature search that told me that one of the best predictors, when you look at a lot of individuals who end up being diagnosed with PCOS, one of the best predictors is actually just the ratio of FSH to LH, which are two hormones in your blood tests. No one's ever said this to me, but because I'm one of these people who you know likes health data, I went and looked at my blood tests and I had way above that, that ratio. And it was like very clear that from that diagnostic criteria, like I definitely had this condition. Um, but it had been completely passed over just because I didn't meet those kind of primary average characteristics. The thing that's interesting is that a recent paper came out like two days ago on PCOS that said that something like only 65% of people who have been recently diagnosed with PCOS have those kind of um, physical characteristics I was describing. So it's not even a good average, right? Like it's not even a good description. I'm not even that much of an outlier. It's not like I'm one of, you know, a hundred people who are like that. I'm one of literally millions of people um, who don't fit that descriptor. So it's just, you know, a simple example of, of how we over average. Yeah. I mean, 65%, I mean, uh, when I was in school, I was a D minus. I mean, you're not, right. you're not getting anywhere, you know, in school. Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's pretty much a failing grade right there. So uh, yeah, yeah I, I think the scientific community labels that as statistically uh, insignificant um, yeah. type of results from there. So we're talking to Nell Luo uh, with Folio Health. Now, you, you mentioned just the lack of information. And, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago how in this industry, information to me, to you, to somebody else listening, we could have three completely different definitions. So when you say information, how do you define that in terms of folia and, and, and your story? Yeah, yeah. So the best way to conceptualize how we think about information is that we want to make sure that each person has a very clear way to describe what their current state of health is, what are the things that are not working well, what are the things that are working well, and then how that responds to therapy. And that type of information is very hard right now to collect through more traditional contexts like clinical information, which would be something that is collected about you at a, at a doctor's appointment. And so for us, we've developed kind of a new definition that we call home reported outcomes. 
And home reported outcomes are exactly what they sound like. They're all the information that you would write in a notebook or in the notes app on your phone that would describe things like, how's my coughing today? How's my headache today? How did my headache respond to this new medication? Did this new medication create you know, changes with my headaches? So that's good, but also cause me nausea. It's relatively basic information that's very critical to that individual being able to actually describe what's going on and get care that meets those needs. Okay. So we're going down the line of action. What's the kind of debriefing from that action? Do I want to repeat that action? Yes or no? Are things improving where it is? So it's almost like a journaling technique, which is, exactly. I, I find that very, very interesting because I, I guess when we talk about information, people want to pair that with data and people want to pair data with analytics. And what you just said is more of, we need to pay attention to the subjective data, not just the objective data that is coming in that is measurable from your blood tests, you know, your, your cardiograms, whatever it is. There's a lot of stuff that filters through that in a traditional healthcare delivery model really gets, you know, really gets lost and, and falls through the cracks, but it is very, very important. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's interesting that you bring up objective versus subjective data. So we actually have a blog post. If uh, some of your nerdier listeners are interested in digging more into this, um, we have a a blog post. We wrote about this a couple of years ago, the difference between objective and subjective data and how to think about it. But um, I think people consider subjective data as less valuable or less accurate. Well, the the memory is fickle, right? There's certain things. yeah, Yeah, it has to be collected in the right way. But so the thing is that like, data that is described, descriptive data, doesn't have to be less accurate. And in fact, there are lots of situations in which clinical data or device data is actually quite inaccurate. Like as an example, you know, my my phone, I don't carry this around with me all day. The number of steps that my phone thinks I've had is not accurate, (laughs) Um, but it seems like it would be accurate because it's a device and because it's objective data and the way that it's measured. But ultimately the method is really what matters, right? What the method is, do I keep this in my pocket or not? Similarly, like the recall timing for for our data, right? For for collecting headache information, it's better if you do it faster as you're describing. Um, But also you don't have to just write subjective data in like sentence structure and text, right? You can collect that information using structured questions that allow it to be much more um, uh, standardized over time for that individual and much more comparable for that person so that then you're able to run analytics on it. So one of the things that we've spent a lot of time doing is actually taking this more subjective contextual information and helping people to collect that in a way that is a structured data set that can then be used for um, analysis. So kind of bridging the gap between those two you know, forms of information. So follow that thread right there, because now I'm curious. So, so we have information coming in and whether you take objective service, uh, sources, like you said, you, know, you got a you uh, step tracker, uh, measure your pulse ox, whatever it is. Um, then you have how, you know, what we call subjective information coming into it you analyze it, what happens? Who uses it? How do you interact with it? Where's it where does it go from there? Yeah. I mean, that's so that's an awesome question. And um, my first response will be 
I think this part of what we do and of just health informatics in general and healthcare services is going to change so much in the next 10 years. So I think that like this is this is a key area that we're focused on and that I think is really important to actually take this information and put it into practice, right? Because it's one thing if you create the data, it's a whole other thing if you can actually use it to get better care. And, um, and, and yeah, just to just to just to pop in right there, because that is a great point. And I don't want that to get you know lost on listeners there that so much of our industry is just so data-driven, data-driven, data-driven. And, and we yeah. look at the data and we analyze it. And then you say, well, what do you do when you analyze it? And they don't have a clue. Publish a paper. <laughs> Publish yep. a paper. I mean, there's yep. a lot of companies out there that serve a data analytic. And I think actually most of them, if they're being honest with themselves, they say, well, we sell it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We sell yeah. it to advertising and marketing companies. I, and I, I kind of yeah. jest. No, no, listen, um, on that topic, there's this conference health that um, I went to. It, we, we've gone to it you know, virtually the past couple of years, but I went to in person um, in Las Vegas right before the pandemic. And I honestly got so frustrated. I actually changed our whole booth around um, to, to react to my feelings about this. But my team and I were looking at how um, there, it's basically this healthcare prom. It's like a carnival of people who go to talk about digital innovation in healthcare and how awesome basically all these people, all of us are for working in this. But when you take a big step back, just as you just described, what has actually changed in the past five or 10 years, right? Like for an average person who's, who's, I'm stumbling over average because you've already said there is no such thing as average for any individual who is living. Oh, you with, said there's no such thing as an average patient. There's average, average people, patient. but not sure, average sure, sure. So, so for anyone who's living with any type of condition, who's accessing the healthcare system regularly, the actual experience of care and the way decisions are made about what's going on, you know, with their health and what needs to be done it really hasn't changed at all, right? Like we've talked about a lot of things. There have been all sorts of sexy commercials from like IBM Watson Health. And, you know, there are all these all these cool startups. Uh, we're one of them, but ultimately like the experience for that person living with a condition really has not changed in the vast majority of circumstances. Right. And so that's, I think we do need to recognize that. I think we need to stop patting ourselves on the back for all the exciting innovation that's going on. Nothing has happened in most situations. There are a couple examples where that's not true. And there are types of people who have gotten better care. I think telehealth is obviously the most simple example you can come up with. There are p- people have felt a change in their care because they're able to access telehealth. Decentralized clinical trials, I think, can also be held up as something that has actually happened and you know is happening. Yeah, with I agree. I started laughing when you said telehealth. And I'm like, well, no, that's a technology that's been around for 30 some years. Sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so right. I, I would I would hold off on the kudos. Yes, it can it can increase access and it is a great supplement to you know one-on-one care, but it's not world changing. It's not something yeah. new that's gonna really no, no. anything. No, and, and so I feel I feel like I'm sidestepping your question because the only way we're ever gonna fix this problem of nothing actually changing is to have an answer to the question that you asked, which is how do you use this information? The the short answer I have to it is you need to put actionable analytics in the hands of that individual person, the patient or the caregiver, so that they can then use it to get better care. And then you need to open up the channels of communication between those individuals and their care providers so that they're treated with respect when they have that information to share. Because ultimately, we can't expect the way that care is delivered in this country and the way that incentive structures work and the way doctors get paid, we can't expect that they will be able to make time 
to use this data if it's not being directly communicated from the patient or caregiver to the clinician. And so it needs to be an integral part of that conversation, an integral part of that history taking. You know, the appointment should be, here's all the information I have to share with you, or even ahead of time in an ideal world, sending it to the provider. I'm not in the camp of someone who thinks that we're going to, you know, create a direct data stream to the EHR where then the doctor goes in and their magical free time and looks at it ahead of the appointment. That's not how healthcare works. Right. But if I can give you something, you can walk in on with your phone, which I did in my own you know, care experience and said, Hey, here's a chart of when I've had a period over the past six months that looks kind of funny to you. I'm assuming, you know, reproductive specialists. And they were like, Oh yeah, then you get their, <laughs> then you get their interest. And then, because as we say a graph is worth a thousand words. And then you can have the conversation around what's actually been happening, how you're responding to things. I think that's getting better at that is what we're paying attention to, because ultimately you have to give individuals that power to to change their care. And that's the theme that I was going to just really laser in on. It sounds like you're putting, well, maybe not, not putting it onto patients to take a more active role in their healthcare, but giving them a tool to be more involved through yeah, no. health. And um, I was going to joke with you that, you know, the right answer to that previous question was that everybody should go out and download fully health and join a direct primary care physician, because yeah. everything that you just talked about would be completely taken care of, right? You get your care delivery, you get your time with your doctor, they can go over the graph, they can ask a bunch of, you know, time with the questions. So there you go. Shameless plug. No we are talking to Nell Luo with Folio Health. Nell, we were just, just kind of joking aside, talking about really that theme of patient empowerment. And I don't know if that's where you meant to go with that, but that's what resonated with me is you walking into an appointment. I'm sure it's a traditional insurance-based practice, walking in saying, hey, doc, look, this is my problem. Look at this graph. I think there's an issue here. What do you think? Oh, wow. I guess you are the 35% of women out there that don't fit certain demographic and ethnic cues that this condition affects, like we talked about earlier. Am I getting that right that patients can no longer afford from a health and from a dollar standpoint to take a back seat, just throw down an insurance card, walk into any office with somebody in a white coat and a stethoscope and say, here I am, fix me. Yeah. You know, I think that probably it's been the case that we never could afford to do that. But I think that what's changed is that we now have more advanced tools where it's actually possible to make a difference to how that interaction happens. I mean, I'll tell you that I started Folia because of my family's experience with my brother and my mom has kept notebooks since the early nineties about his health and the care that he's received. And ultimately when you're writing everything down in notebooks and keeping Redwell folders the technology that we used to have really did not enable this type of communication because nobody had the time. It just wasn't feasible for anyone to have the time to read that information. And so although it was recorded, it couldn't be used. And although it was recorded, it couldn't be graphed, right? Be like You couldn't see the trends. That has changed now. And so I think that the way that you know I conceptualize this is that um, it's always been the case that it's been difficult for patients and caregivers to uh, be able to describe what's been going on in the 20 minutes that you have with the clinician and to get care that's actually precise to your experience. And now we have the opportunity with the te- technology that's available to do that in a much more precise and individualized way. 
And frankly, I also think clinicians are a lot more receptive to it than they would have been 20 years ago, right? Like the people graduating from medical school now, or even, you know, many of the people who are in the profession for years are much more aware of the need to pay attention to that individual and to what their experience is and to have an open mind and listen to that patient as an expert in their own disease and in their own care. Um, And that's only improving over time. But I think that that's um, something that wasn't, wasn't possible before. And I'm going, you know, my next kind of like thinking is going, gosh, when, when somebody sees a physician or a medical provider that they're not familiar with, I mean, how important is it to be able to have that information that says, here's my medications. So you're not sitting there trying to pull from memory because there's a lot of scary stories out there. Someone walks into an urgent care or a hospital and forgets to mention that, oh, I'm on this blood thinner. And of course, you know, there's massive complications that come from that. So, you know, it's almost like if I get this wrong, don't, don't kill me, but it's almost like you are capturing the human experience as it relates to people's interactions with their own health Mm -hmm. in order to avoid very human errors on the care delivery side? You know, it's one of the like really important use cases, um, depending on the type of condition that you're living with. So absolutely. Um, There are also uh, ways in which you can kind of think about almost the converse of that, which would be um, the danger of not getting the right care. (laughs) So there's danger in getting the wrong care. And then there's the danger in not getting the right care. And that is more present for most people, um, at least over the course of a full lifetime, right? Um, Because ultimately, we are not even, by definition, we're not even aware of what we don't know, right, about our own health or what what could be happening or how well we could be treating a condition. Um, And one of the key things that people who are living with rare or complex diseases know is that you have to be the advocate who says there's something that's not right here. There's something that is creating an issue for me that I know will cause long-term harm. I mean, I have a sister who I hope doesn't mind my sharing this, who is currently in the middle of an autoimmune disease diagnostic odyssey. And that experience, as I'm sure, I'm sure there are some listeners who are kind of nodding along with this, is one of recognizing that you're not getting the care for your current experience, not knowing even exactly how to define your disease, right? You might have pain, fatigue, but it's like often very difficult to measure. And you just know that if you don't get care for it in the next you know, five years, that 20 years from now, you're going to be having really a lot of trouble, but you have to advocate for yourself to get that in the way that our current system works. And so you know, to be able to do that, you need to first collect the information on what's going on. And that's, you know, that's, that's what we would advocate for. Yeah. Good, strong, clean information. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a struggle. Anybody who's ever worked with that four letter word data uh, understands that yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of uh, physicians out there who throw their hands up and be like, no, and hell no, not interested. Don't give me something else. I need to spend time with, cause I'm up to my neck already and just trying to care for people that seven minute visits and all that kind of, that kind of jazz. I want to ask from a technology standpoint, there's so much money being, this is not derogatory by any means, but thrown at technology companies, technology sector and healthcare tech and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I look at it from our standpoint where we are in the middle of the care delivery, you know, changing the business model and the care delivery model with the direct primary care and direct specialty care from the Freedom HealthWorks side. And, 
you know, from our experience, we, we, we get bombarded by technology vendors who say, hey, try this system, try this system, and try this system, try this system. And we look at that and we're like, wow, when you cut out a lot of the middlemen and a lot of waste and, and you're not doing business with billing codes and that kind of stuff, a lot of these products just aren't useful from yeah. a clinician standpoint. Yeah. And a lot of it is noise, a lot of it is waste, but yet there's billions of dollars being thrown at it by health systems. And I never understood it. Maybe it's because I'm an idiot. I have no idea. I just wanted to get your opinion on it. You know, why is there this drive from investors and, and, and hospital systems that they think they could throw money at the latest and greatest thing and somehow it's going to magically fix things? I think that a lot of it comes from complexity breeds the necessity to like put a band-aid on the thing that's currently creating an issue with your, you know, business model, your billing, things like that. Right. So I think that something that's very interesting about the startup world in general is that you're supposed to be focused. And you know, when I say supposed to, it's very broad, but a lot of people would advocate for focusing on a very narrow problem that is like very niche and also is quite emergent right? And like exists right now. The market needs to exist right now. You need to be able to clearly define the buyer and you need to be able to develop a small niche product to solve one specific problem. Don't boil and, the ocean, right? How many times you heard of that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the thing, the thing is that in healthcare, because of how things work and how broken and complex so much of the system is, the immediate problems that can be easily solved with point solutions, which again, those are the things you're supposed to do when you, you, know, you start a tech startup. Those are just problems bred by the complexity of the business models of the incentive structures, right? And so we end up perpetuating those because that's the simplest way to build a company within healthcare. And then suddenly what you've done is you've layered a new stakeholder on top of the existing stakeholders, you've created more complexity and now someone else needs to come in to mediate that complexity, right? It's, it's just, and, and, and it's not any one person's fault. And I don't think anyone ever goes into this planning to be part of the problem. It's just that when you're focused on such a narrow scope and you're trying to solve a problem that is currently a you know, red blinking problem, you're ultimately going to just be feeding into the way that the system already works. And so the way that we approached this, because frankly, I had no interest in doing that, um, was to say we have um, a very large concept for what this product is. We have a very kind of audacious goal for what this is going to be. And we're going to build this company not following kind of that um, best practice in terms of how you often would build a tech startup. We're going to build this company toward that long-term goal. And so we're going to fundraise that way. We're going to build the product that way. We're going to set up, you know, partnerships that way and customers that way. Um, it's really hard. Like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's really hard to do that. But I think it's the only way to actually build a company that does things differently because otherwise you're just you're going to be putting band-aids on things. It's just you know how it works. I think that's a great lead-in for the grand finale here. You know, last question for you. Take a step back, like you said. Uh, Get in your hot air balloon. Give me, give me the 30, 40, 50, 100,000 foot view, whatever you wanted to, so you can see the entire ecosystem. What's the perfect healthcare system look like to you? Yeah, this is a question I've been grappling with for a very long time, a weirdly long time. I like, was not a normal fun college student. I was thinking about this and talking to my boyfriend, now husband, about this. And he was like, stop. But <laughs> when I was 21, I would have said, 
you need a cradle to grave public health care system. I did some research that was very generous, generously funded by my undergrad and went over to Europe and did some on the ground research with people running different aspects of nationalized healthcare systems. I still believe that that is a better model than the current fragmented private model we have in the US, but I learned about some things that I did not had not fully recognized, um, like the difficulty associated with having ultimately political control over a healthcare system, which then causes, just like with any other thing that's um, kind of primarily controlled through policy, ups and downs in terms of the way that it's funded and run. And so it can't be consistent. I do think that it's important to have cradle to grave incentive structures, because ultimately the only way for someone to have really care that carries them through their life in the most effective way possible is for someone to be bearing the full cost of that care through their entire lifetime. But I don't think that it needs to be done in a way that is, you know, fully nationalized. And so the best system I've seen so far that actually exists, and you can think about other ways that you might describe it, is the German healthcare system. And it's called the Bismarckian model. And basically it's a set of competing nonprofits that are basically trying to use the government's dollars most effectively. And so they are you know, competing against each other um, for basically funding to run um, healthcare for individuals. And then I think if you kind of cross that with a cradle to grave system so that these organizations are owning the whole experience of someone's uh, lifetime care, that's the best alignment that I've seen. Um, and, you know, we could talk about like a full, a full fair market. My, my concern with a full fair, fair market is that healthcare as a good is kind of difficult to value for an individual. It's much easier to say I should only get a Corolla, not a Mercedes. Right. Um, but it's much harder to say, I, I can't afford the best care because ultimately that's something that, um, you know, everybody ha- has a right to the best care. So that's, that's where I think the fair market system is complicated. The last thing I'll say, which I'm sure you know, is rationing happens. <laughs> rationing happens either uh, through like intentional decision-making or because of a lack of being able to access or pay. So there is no system in which there is not rationing and we have to let that go and figure out the best way to do rationing from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always fascinating. I, I love answering that question. And, and uh, there's so many different views out there people have different takes on it. And so that's why we ask it, right? It's like magic wand, what happens? And um, I appreciate you sharing it. And when I ask that, I don't want to jump in, you know, debate things. Well, what about this? What about that? Just to play devil's advocate, because from an information, just learning standpoint, you know, it really resonated what you said is, you know, here's somebody who's actually been boots on the ground. And <laughs> you said something that just doesn't always happen very often is you actually change your mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I will salute you on that. Not many people do that or are even open to saying, wow, okay, maybe previous views aren't quite in line with what I thought they were. And so go out there and experience something else. So, so kudos to you on that. Nell Luo, Folio Health, founder, CEO. This has been an absolute pleasure. I wish you all the luck, all the success, a continued growth for your company. Once again, thanks for coming on and spending some time with me on Healthcare Americana. 
Yeah, it's it's been great to talk with you. This is this is fun, and uh, we can we can offline. I'd love to hear what you think about my thoughts on that. <laughs> best, oh, best, there's no secrets here. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> That's gonna do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com. Catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list. Visit our online store. Pretty cool stuff there. And as always, give us your feedback. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.